Halloween is a time for costumes, and that's fine. Um, they're not real. At least I hope you're not thinking that they are. Um, they're not real, and so for a child or even an adult to put on an outfit, a disguise, a mask, and then sort of you know pretend and parade around and do the trick-or-treating thing, nobody really believes that you intend to say, this is who I am, this is what I am, like really truly. No one really believes that you are really saying that this is who you are. It's understood, it's recognized, it's part of the deal that this isn't real. That this isn't real, and so it's really not that big a deal, you know, with the store-bought cost costumes and all that stuff. The problem comes, though, when you wear a costume, wear a mask, put on a character persona throughout the year, and it's not any more real than what you bought at Walmart or Target, or could buy, but the problem now is, is that you're wearing it in an internal way, a new persona, a new self, a mask of sorts, a pretending, a posturing, and you want others to believe it's real. It's not real, but you're living as though you want others to believe that it's real. Now, that's a problem. That's a really terrible problem. If, if nothing else, it's self-delusional. It's terrible messaging, just false messaging, bent, twisted. It's self-destructive, and it's all the worse when Christians do it. And we do. And we do. We are meant for so much more than that. And I have good news for you. The Lord is holding out towards us this morning so much more than that. Reality lived before him. And on this Reformation Sunday, all of which I tried to explain earlier in the service, what in the world that is, here on this Reformation Sunday, we're going to try and uh, learn a bit from the life and ministry from, of Francis Schaeffer that speaks to the need for reality in the Christian life and what that means, what that really means, reality. So if you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we're going to be reading verses 7 through 15. John 10, verses 7 through 15, I want you to really pay heed to verse 10 within that flow of verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 7 through 15. Uh, but we're going to read the entire passage, but verse 10 in particular is pretty vital for where we're going here this morning. Hear another word of God. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, can we pray for a moment? I'm gonna read here a few verses from Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Lord, time and again, you implore us to remember. We are, it's been wisely and uh, soberly said, we are always but one generation away from apostasy. You call us to remember. You call us to tell, to pass down, to tell of what you have taught us, what you have done in our lives, and what we find here in the pages of your word. Uh, we ask indeed that you would make us tellers, make us rememberers. Uh, we thank you for this Reformation Sunday. Uh, we thank you that we are not stuck in a pattern of having to worship mortal men and women, but rather we worship the infinite personal God who in his grace has raised up mortal men and women, using them as instruments in his hands in extraordinary ways through the centuries of the church. Indeed, uh, you delight to take ordinary people like us and do extraordinary things. So we ask that you would encourage our hearts, embolden our hearts for what we see here in the life of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, more than anything, we ask that you would show us yourself, Jesus, in what we see in what you did in him. Amen. Francis Schaeffer, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a sketch here uh, in case you don't know much about the man. He was perhaps the one of, if not the most, but I'll just say one of the most important influential apologists of the 20th century by that defender of the Christian faith. Uh, his uh, Time Magazine, Time Magazine, 1965, did a story on Schaefer and described him as the missionary to the intellectuals. His books, his 22 books are still selling well, have been translated into quite some number of languages. Uh, his film series and his lecture uh, tour back in the 70s and 80s was something of a cultural phenomenon. I've even some of you in this room have told me you attended some of those, saw Schaefer down in Nashville, uh, in, in fact, uh, on some of those tours. Labrie is French for the shelter. I'll talk about that later. Uh, its impact, direct impact, and then you could say the indirect impact upon those who were had an experience there whether in Switzerland or England or the Netherlands or Korea or two here in the States, and I'm leaving several of them out. So many were directly influenced by the gospel through what Edith and Francis Schaeffer were doing there in the ministry of Labrie. And then you expand that out, the indirect, like if it direct influence on one person and then the indirect influence it has on others and others and others and ripples go out from there. It's impossible. They, they don't even know how many people have gone through uh, Labrie uh, over the years. They never kept count. One of the things that, was, that Schaefer was passionate about, you see this through all his writings, whether large or small, 
uh, whether at the very beginning or towards the very end, was his concern for reality. And I mean that in two ways. One, the reality of truth, of what he called true truth, lest he be misunderstood in a world of relativism and, well, it wasn't called this back in that day, but postmodernism. He referred to true truth. This was concern for objective biblical truth. But also truth in a different sense, since his concern that Christians would live truly in, in response, in regards, in, in a consistent way before the infinite personal God. 1951, 1951, Francis Schaeffer writes this essay, and it's called The Secret of Power and the Enjoyment of the Lord. The Secret of Power and the Enjoyment of the Lord. Now, we, you need to know something of the background for this little uh, essay that he writes. Uh, he's... Um, well, the first terms are probably important. Power. What does he mean by power? He means by that fruit. Fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer, transformative grace, evidencing the Spirit's work in the life of this person. So in that sense is what he meant in terms of power. And then enjoyment in the life of the believer. What did he mean by that? Well, the sense of, of um, peace and flourishing and satisfaction and joy in the Christian life. And so Schaefer is writing about these two things in this essay, power, as we understood, and enjoyment in the Christian life. And the reason that he's going, the reason that this, this essay is so important and was so important to him and why he's honing in on these two things is because as he took a survey in the church around him, the evangelical church at the time, and within his own heart, he was forced to draw a sobering conclusion that neither one of those things was well evidenced at all. Power or enjoyment in the Christian life. And it shook him. It shook him deeply. It took him into a crisis of his faith for some number of months. Now, on the other side of that is when he writes this essay. He said that um, this was the most important thing he ever wrote. 1951, he lives on to 1984. He says this little essay, you can sit down and read it in one sitting. He said that this essay was the most important thing that he ever wrote. It took him two years to finish it. And he was known for years after that to hand it out freely to workers at Labrie. That's how significant the concepts that we're going to talk about here in just a minute, the high points in this essay, that's how significant these ideas, these biblical realities were to Francis Schaeffer, that he is really putting that kind of uh, freight on this short essay. What Schaeffer's writing about, we're going to be talking about here in the next few minutes, is exactly what the theme of what Jesus is pointing towards in John 10. John 10, verse 10 in, in particular, where Jesus is now holding forth an invitation to his disciples. Now, not just then, now. He's holding forth this invitation to his disciples still today for an abundant life, or as the NIV says, life in the full. The, the idea being this is a, a glimpse, a taste of what things, how things were like in Eden itself and a glimpse, a taste of what they will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. 
Jesus is holding that invitation forth for his people, for his followers, for his disciples. Now, abundant life. The question is, are his followers listening? Are we hearing this invitation? And that's the concern of Schaefer. What Jesus is holding forth here in John 10, chapter 10. The Lord does indeed call us, invites us, beckons us towards an abundant life. But that comes along a particular path. He's holding forth, he's inviting, he's beckoning us towards this abundant life, but that comes along a particular path. I'm using phrasing that Schaefer doesn't actually use, but, but you could think of this path in terms of having two guardrails or two parts to it, two sides of one coin, if I can mix the metaphors. One is this, the need for purity. The need for purity is the first point. And the second is the need for love. And you cannot have one without the other and walk this path. It is both equally at the same time, and there is no tension between them. There's no tension whatsoever between the two. So let's look at this together. Um, the, uh, the high points, the highlights of what Schaefer was getting at here, and uh, I, I think you'll find it encouraging, but perhaps challenging as, as well. So first, the need for purity. Schaefer starts here, probably, I don't know this, but probably because he knew it would be an easy sell for most of his readers. Well, of course the Christian life is all about purity. You know, that, that sort of thing, right? And so that's, he's going to start at a point of agreement. But where he goes, likely takes most of his readers then and now to places they're not ready for in terms of what that actually entails. So the first thing is in terms of biblical purity that Schaefer makes clear is, and this is what the scriptures say, is that it is deeper than we think. And I think Will was touching on this just uh, recently here in, in, a, in a message from James. It is deeper. Biblically speaking, purity is far deeper than we think. It is not merely an outward thing. It is not just a list of rules that we are to obey or things that can be externally tracked and measured. Real purity, purity, biblically speaking, touches the heart. It is an inward thing. Just think in terms of the Ten Commandments. You're like, well, how does that prove it? Let me tell you. The first nine, every one of them can be broken without any outward act. And the tenth one is completely inward. Thou shalt not covet. Purity from start to finish is, yes, it manifests itself outwardly. Of course it does. But fundamentally... It is an internal thing. It is a thing of, of the heart. So it is deeper than we think, and it is beyond what we hear, beyond what we typically hear, beyond what we are typically told. Purity, biblically speaking, is not just a personal thing. It is not just about me and Jesus and me living right, me doing right, me thinking right. No, it goes far beyond that. Biblically speaking, Old and New Testament. It is irrefutable that there is a corporate nature to the faith that we have to take into account, especially us Westerners that do a terrible job of this. 
what one person, what one member believes and how they live has an impact, has an influence, has an effect on the whole. We are not isolated, isolated parts. We are, there's an organicness to the church and life in the church, so much so that if you or I or any of us fail to live out real orthodoxy, right teaching, right belief, or orthopraxy, right living, right practice, it is necessary then, if we fail to live out in those, either one of those two orthos, it is right and necessary, though painful, for us then to be separated and excluded from the body for the sake of the body and Jesus' honor, name, and reputation in the world. Such is the nature of the corporate purity of the church that we have to, to reckon with. So this, biblically speaking, the purity, rightly understood, is, is deeper than we think. It is beyond what we typically hear. And one more thing, it's not just negative. It, it's, it's not just negative. And this is where Schaefer went with this. It is purity, rightly understood in the Scriptures, is never meant to be an end, a goal in and of itself. And when purity, right living, right thinking, right uh, speaking, right... Uh, believing all these things, when, when that becomes the end goal, when that becomes the point, when that becomes the end for what we're after, inevitably, all we're talking about is division. All we're going to end up with is sinful division. If what we're after, if what we're chasing after is purity... And that has proven itself time and again in the history of the church, even in recent days, where for the sake of some warped understanding of purity, we fall into sinful division. Purity goes long, long beyond, far beyond that. It is to be born out of love for Jesus. That's why we pursue orthodoxy. That's why we pursue orthopraxy. That's why we pursue purity in my own personal life, in our corporate life, out of love for Jesus. And that's the only motive, possibly, that can push us and inflame us in this. Or I can put it this way. This is not Schaefer. This is Schwartz. <laughs> purity must never be pursued with gladdened zeal, but with a bended knee. And perhaps with tears. Biblically speaking, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about purity. It is not easy. It is terrifyingly different, difficult, but it is also absolutely vital and necessary. Absolutely vital and necessary. These are the things that Schaefer was getting at in this Paper. Let me take you back to, to that and, and keep, remind you of the context. He is struggling. He is looking around him. And he's looking within him and sobered and terrified by what he sees. And he's trying to diagnose this deep spiritual sickness. And in doing so, he raises some powerful points and also some sobering questions that weren't just for 1951. 
They're for 2021. So questions like this. Do we know really truly what true purity is? That it is not just an outward thing. That it is not just a personal thing. And it can never be the goal, the end in and of itself. Do we know that? Are we marked by that? Are we known for that? Or, or are we just known and marked by our divisions? Our splitting apart. The Lord indeed calls us into abundant life. But that is marked out by a particular path. The first part of that path is the need for purity. The second part is the need for love. And as I said a moment, a little while ago, this is the other side of the coin. These two are not in tension. They're just like this. You, they're inextricably linked. Uh, absolute, again, just as surely as with the purity, this is absolutely necessary. It is not optional, and it is actually completely, utterly impossible without Jesus. Both the purity and the love. What does Schaefer have to teach us about this? First, the need for love towards one another. That may seem obvious, but it has to be said. The need for love towards one another. Love can never be a slogan for Christians, just something we talk about. It must be something we do. And it must be shown towards one another, beginning with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, our fellow Christians. No matter, no matter what group or camp or whatever they may be a part of, we are to show love towards our fellow Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we are also to show love towards our fellow human beings. And if that wasn't plain enough, Jesus tells us a story to make the point abundantly clear. Some of you may know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to read it. Go back and look it up yourself. But it's, that's not meant to be just a bunch of words that we tell our children and talk about in Sunday school and then just dismiss when it's inconvenient. To pay heed to that story in any real way at all is to see that love is costly and not convenient. We are indeed to love one another as our fellow Christians and to love one another in terms of our fellow man. So that's the first thing, love towards one another. Love truly demonstrated. Love should be seen. It should be, not for the sake of being seen, don't misunderstand, but it should be observable. It should be, you could almost say tactile. It should be um, obvious and felt and known. Acts of kindness. Schaefer points out in this paper how many great heroes of the faith that you think of being men or women, you just think of being these stalwarts and strong, and they were in their own way, but also at the same time so gentle towards the least of these, most especially children. A real gentleness and a kindness must be there, manifested in the complexity of what, biblically speaking, love is. 
truly demonstrated in that way, truly demonstrated in our fair dealings with one another. Adherence to the golden rule, not do unto others before they do unto you, but do unto others as you would wish them, right? To do unto you, which perhaps in our day, and Schaefer is explicit about this in 1951, in his context, he's quite explicit about honesty. Speaking truly, not just to one another, but of one another. And if we would be called intolerant, may it be of slander. May it be of gossip. So love manifested, demonstrated in these ways. 1951. Uh, acts of kindness, fair dealings. One last thing under that point. Willing, willing, to get, willing to go into the hurt. And by that, what he, what he means is willing to say the hard thing to someone that you know is going to hurt them and you also know has the potential to hurt you. Because hard conversations, we call them that. Why? Because they're hard. And they're risky. And they, be, they can be costly. But being willing in love to go there and to say what needs to be said truly for the deep good of that other person. Love truly demonstrated. Love towards others, love truly demonstrated. The third of the three points, love rightly patterned. Uh, oh, that we would hear these words. Uh, I, I feel as I, as I read them the last week or so, I just felt like they were reverberating through time and, and how we need to hear this here in our own day. These words, I'm going to read this right out of the, that paper. Schaefer said, If we have come to the frame of mind where we are so preoccupied with the struggle against fleshly sin or unbelief that we act as though any means is permissible, then the love is gone and the power has gone. Combat to be for God's greatest glory must be fought according to God's rules. It is possible to struggle for personal purity and the purity of the church without having the struggle based on love and leading to a deeper love of God and man. When this is done, we need to hear this, when this is done, it leads inevitably to dead orthodoxy and dead orthodoxy is always the threshold to new heresy. That's really sobering. Put it another way, shorthand. Schaefer, that's 1951, years later, in a, in a sermon that's, uh, I believe it's in his, it's, the, the manuscript is there in his book, True Spirituality. It is, he refers to this, this idea as the, the absolute necessity of doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. The absolute necessity, with no equivocation, of doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. And any other way is just us. It's just our pride. It's just our ego. It's just done out of fear and a desire to control. We are called by the Lord himself to do his work his way and no other way. There is no other way. 
This is biblically speaking what love is. And this is what Schaefer's driving at there in 1951 in, in that essay that reverberates all through his work. I even read a transcript of a, of a sermon that he preached in 1983. And I could see it. You can see these, these messages online. 1951, 1983. The, the themes are recurring. Early in his ministry, at, right at the end. Right at the very end. Let, let me show you how practically this worked itself out in his own life. A, a story, a true story. So uh, it was January 1968 in Chicago. Uh, Schaefer and Bishop Pike are appearing before a live audience with a moderator. And uh, Bishop Pike, you, you probably don't, you know, how would we know who he is? You might have known him at the time. He was an Episcopal priest who had rejected the fundamentals of the faith. Just some side notes here. He was an alcoholic. He was now on his third wife, 24 years his junior. Just kind of raises some questions. And the, the topic of the, the debate for that night was this. Um, what relevance has historical Christianity on modern man? So there's Schaefer and Bishop Pike on this stage with a moderator in this big audience, 1968. Anyone, most anyone there, witnesses of this event, said Schaefer owned him. He had the arguments in terms of the logic and his persuasiveness and all. So you could, put, you could say, callously put it this way, Schaefer won. Schaefer doesn't care. He is not interested in the least about winning an argument. He is concerned for the man on the stage with him. And that was actually the most memorable thing to the people in the room. The kindness demonstrated by Francis Schaeffer in that event towards Bishop Pike. Pike said he had never met another man on this planet like Francis Schaeffer. Because of that, it began a correspondence between these two men that went on for months up until Pike died a mysterious death in the Sinai Desert later that year or the next year. Now you wonder, why am I bringing that up? Just to kill some time? No, because I want to, let me take you back to the article. What's the point? The, the point of the article is the point. Schaefer, you know, remember the context. He's trying to diagnose this deep spiritual sickness that he can see within himself and within the larger church. And he's recognizing the absolute need for purity and the absolute need for love. Do we know that? Do we know that in our time, in our day? Do we know what such love actually is? Do we know what it looks like? Do we know how we have been loved so richly in Christ? And that love is then to be poured out through our pores to the people around us, whoever they may be. Do we know? Do we ourselves know? Again, the Lord himself is holding forth this invitation to abundant life, life in the full, but it comes, it comes along a particular path marked by purity and love. Now, Schaefer, let me wrap this up. Schaefer wrote about a lot of other things, to be sure. 
many other subjects, and I can recommend some books to you if you're interested. But again, I cannot say this strongly enough. This was fundamental. This was fundamental to the man's life and work. Let me talk about Labrie. I said I'd come back to it. Let me do that now for just a minute. Labrie, French for the shelter. It's begun in the summer of 1955. It's not a retreat center. It's not a think tank. It's not a commune. It's something of a movement of sorts, you could say, that begun in Switzerland, as I said, in 1955, really by accident, really by accident, but very quickly took on a vision statement. And the vision statement goes like this, and it still holds today. To show forth by demonstration in our lives and work the existence of God. To show forth by demonstration in our lives and work the existence of God. What would that mean? Well, for them, it means, and for Labrie, all the branches of Labrie, it means a vital, ongoing, daily dependence on the Holy Spirit. It means striving to answer people's honest questions with honest answers. It means a community that lives and works together, united under the finished work of Jesus. And for quite some number of years, it has flourished. You may be wondering, how can that be? I mean, it just seems like such an obscure thing. I mean, how did it take off? What is its, is its secret? How is it, by the way, think about it this way. This points the, makes the question a little bit more pointed. How is it that Labrie could, could continue, and not just continue and survive, but flourish in an age of growing numbers of nuns, and that's N-O-N-E apostrophe S, those who would describe themselves as no affiliation. So Labrie, a vibrancy to that ministry in an age of growing number of nuns, of the not just unchurched, but de-churched, and Labrie is flourishing, and one more thing, growing numbers of children who walk away from the faith in which they were raised. And Labrie is flourishing. What's going on there? How is that, is it possible? How is it having the impact that it's having? And how is it that it seems to be culturally transferable wherever it goes? And it's simply this. It's, they're addressing the things that Schaefer is addressing in this paper. It's connecting with the needs of the human heart. And so people are, are, are drawn to it. Again, the Lord calls us to this abundant life. He's created us for, hardwired us for this abundant life. And where these things are seen, even in any poor way, purity and love, where these things are seen, even in any poor way, purity and love, people are drawn to it. as they were to Jesus and still are, because that's really what we're talking about. That's really who we're talking about, is the draw, the one who balances purity and love and perfection. Perhaps this is something that we need to hear today, and perhaps it's something that we need to plead to Jesus to bring forth in and through us. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you. Thank you for your work in and through Francis and Edith Schaefer. Um, using some of his own imagery, he really was uh, like a pebble dropped in a stream. And the reverberations just keep going, just keep going and going. Uh, he wrote of there being no little people and no little places. And you and your grace took this, uh, took this man and all his stuff and took that woman and all her stuff and the people around them and, and worked and continue to do so. We, this is good to remember. It's good to hear. And like Psalm 78, good to hear and to tell. And we thank you of this wonder, of this invitation that you hold forth to us, even this moment to life in the full, abundant life. We ask that you would teach us more of what the path looks like, of what the trail markers are of the need for purity and love. Thank you that you balance these things in perfection. And as you make us to be more like you, you are bringing them about. Oh, would you do it more? We pray in your name.